Yes, guys, welcome to another episode of the Different Stripes podcast. Um, I am your co-host, Kevin Kim, on the sixth installation, and here I am with my fellow co-host, Bennett Hogendorn. How are you doing, homie? What up, Kevin? Been too long. Why have we not done this before? That's a fact. And I say that because I'm also equally culpable in all this, too. So <laughs> this is more of a reflection on myself. But I'm good, man. How have you been? Living, man. You know, like freaking month. Well, happy one year of being oh, of quarantining. I know, right? <laughs> the worst anniversary. So, the worst anniversary. And I guess, who, who knows? Maybe this will help us motivate and do more episodes but uh i digress i just wanted to jump into um we're like well into the second half of the prem season and i know that this i know that tottenham season has been quite you're already careful with your words (laughs) you're already being careful with your words you're being too nice I mean, look, there's there's other, like, Sun Spurs supporters out there, so I got to tread on some eggshells and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, man, so knowing how you are a massive Spurs fan, I just wanted to mm-hmm. get your opinion on the season, man. Like, first of all, where are they finishing? Are they getting Champions League or what's going on? Kevin, we're not finishing top four. No, it's not at the rate that we're going. Um and yeah, I know you said that you wanted to walk on eggshells because of the Sun fans. I think the Sun fans uh-huh. can take solace in the fact that I don't think the problems with Spurs this year is a Sun-related issue. He has clearly mm. been one of the bright spots this year. Um, it's just been very, very divisive, I think, this year. As mm. about as divisive as I can remember since supporting Spurs um interesting it just feels like every single result just completely swings the pendulum on the mood of the entire outlook of the club just from a Mm match-to-match basis and uh you know when you bring in a guy like jose Mourinho, who does emphasize results so much um you end up weighing those results pretty heavily and Mm -hmm. uh like I said, it feels very divisive. I think people are kind of hunkering down into whatever camp they may fall into right now. And mm-hmm. they're kind of operating a lot of uh, confirmation bias mm-hmm. where if something happens that doesn't support their viewpoint, they will find reasons that does support their viewpoints. Uh, you know, for example, the big kind of divisive topic right now is uh, the quality of the squad that Spurs have right now. Um, Kevin, I know, I'm sure you're aware that we brought in uh, seven, eight new players this past window. Mm-hmm. Pretty active for uh, Daniel Levy, especially during a pandemic. Yeah. So the thought process was that the squad was pretty deep this mm-hmm. year. And now that we've gotten almost halfway through the season, and some of these people in the squad that don't start every match that are getting some run and not impressing right away, people are using that as ammo to say that the squad isn't good mm. enough to kind of alleviate pressure off Mourinho. Mm. And people like myself kind of view it as Mourinho is supposed to be the guy that instills this kind of sheepishly, vaguely defined winning mentality that gets thrown out a lot. And, uh, you know, if he is the manager of this pedigree that he has created for himself over the last two decades, you would think, at least in my personal opinion, that he should be able to get more out of the squad than he's currently getting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I am kind of on the side of I think the squad's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I think the talent is there's a lot of talent there to work mm-hmm. with, and I don't think we're really getting the most out of it right now. Um, that's kind of the synopsis. That's kind of where kind of where we're at right now. It kind of would you say halfway right now, Kevin? We're about halfway yeah, we're, through. Yeah, we're like yeah, we're we're going into the second half of the season for sure, for sure. So yeah, what you see is pretty much what you get. I don't think there's much opportunity for variance in regards to what the current results teams are getting unless you're like brighton and you've been keeping clean sheets for like the last four game weeks and beating liverpool but i digress i was actually thinking um how this is kind of unique because you're going through the mo experience right now and i went through it as a united supporter and when i saw uh, Tottenham's game against Brighton, for instance, that was oh, man. dire, man. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, when you talked about the the signings at the start of the season, like, Hoiberg, for instance, like, what a player. 100%. I think that he's someone that has... Exceeded all expectations. Yes, yep. and he's like, deserves to start all the time. But I just don't see any incisiveness when attacking when it comes to Tottenham. I think Lucas is supposed to step it up, but kind of sort of isn't. Lamella, I see, is getting more opportunity, but he doesn't seem to provide that little something that will force opposition to like pay attention to him rather than double-marking uh, Kane and Son, for instance. So I guess... yeah. What's 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 the way moving forward? Like, okay, you are in the camp that Tana Mango make top four this year. Am I correct? Doesn't look like it so Doesn't far. Doesn't look nope. like it. So if that's the case, like, what's the most um, fruitful way that Spurs, Mourinho, and the squad should move forward with this season in order for it to be a success as much as it can be considering the circumstances? It's a good question, and I think Spurs fans have kind of walked ourselves into a corner mm-hmm. here because we have established with the firing of Pochettino and the subsequent hiring of title-laden Jose Mourinho mm-hmm. that the way we define success is with tangible silverware. Mm-hmm. That's how we have decided we are going to define success. Mm-hmm. Now, I might have my own disagreements about how you define success in a sport where there is a finite amount of trophies to go around every year uh-huh. and a sport that's very top heavy so if that's the only way you're defining success you know you probably end up being disappointed most of the time but because of that if you're asking what the blueprint is for a successful season mm-hmm. we're in a league cup final yes um we're for all intents and purposes going to be going all out for europa yes uh, the league seems a little bit too far gone now and might end up looking like a more likely path to Champions League is via Europa. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. So that, you could kind of lay it on the framework that if you won the League Cup, pull off a miracle against City, you get the trophy drought over after about 13 years now, and then you make a run at Europa. Very similar, actually, Kevin, to that second season under Mourinho at United. Yeah where there's a certain point where there was a slow start in the middle of the season or a slow lull in the middle of the season that second year at United. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of faded away in the league, but you still got the League Cup. Mm-hmm. And then you made that you made that Europa run against uh, <laughs> and beat Ajax in the final. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, 
Jose can say, look what I did. Second year, I got two trophies. Look at the tangible success I always bring to every place I go to. Mm-hmm. And I think Spurs mm-hmm. fans are really desperate for some kind of tangible success like that that they can hang their hat on. Yeah. Um, now, my question, I have reservations about how poorly we have looked, the performances. Um, yeah. And I think our results are starting to reflect our performances more, where I think when we had went on a run, made it to the top of the table in the fall, some of those mm-hmm. results were kind of hiding some of the performances that were lacking. And I think now it's if we play this kind of directionless, like you were saying, there's no like really possession structure when we have the ball. And if you just mm-hmm. get a league cup out of that, was it really worth it? And some people would say yes. And that kind of just depends on, you know, how you view the game in general. I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. based on what Jose took over and kind of the paradigm shift from Pochettino to Mourinho. Yeah. I enjoy the journey as much as what you might have at the end of it. And I think for people like Delhi to be completely ostracized. Yeah. Um, Tongi, I didn't really like the way Jose handled him last year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a League Cup is going to be worth it. I mean, obviously, I take a trophy mm-hmm. with open arms of any kind. But that's, that's kind of where my mm-hmm. mindset is at. And I think we're going to get to a point where... If Jose just has a league cup and an eighth, eighth place finish in the league, he's going to define the season as, as a success, and it's going to open up a lot of conversations about what actually is success. Hmm, that's valid. Yeah, and actually, now that you mention uh, Europa League too, there's plenty for Spurs to fight for. I mean, I feel like if you guys win uh, the Europa League and get Champions League through that, that's definitively going to be considered a success but your concern seems to be more around the culture that Mourinho is building at Tottenham and you kind of have gripes with it because you feel like what it's not sustainable or do you just not appreciate how he treats like Ndombele and Delhi, for instance yeah I think it's a little bit of both uh I I think he has kind of this rule by fear strategy where Mm -hmm. if you're not with him, you're against him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think with the squad that we have right now, when we are having to call upon squad players, uh, you need everyone that you can get in the squad that you have, especially when our supposed strength going into the year was our depth. And when you take these hard stances and, you know, I don't know if people are really maybe outside of Spurs fans really paying attention, but a lot of the Europa League group stages and uh, other cup matches in the fall, we would have kind of a B team that we would roll out. Mm-hmm. But when we'd go into a halftime and it's still nil-nil, Mo would usually pull the plug on that B team and start putting in the heavy hitters oh, like Son and Kane and Ndombele. Mm-hmm. So there's a real lack of trust in the rest of the squad. I see. And then now when we are looking at the performances like you had mentioned against Brighton, yeah. when some of our outlier squad players aren't performing, it's partly because they just haven't played and haven't been able to have a really a run in the team. And when the hook is so, and the lease is so short, somebody as pragmatic as Mourinho, the, the lease is really short on these players. Mm-hmm. And we don't really allow people to make mistakes and kind of go through the teething period. Yeah, it's no, it's no surprise to me that our defense has become very, very error-prone mm-hmm. um, and we're not able to consolidate leads when we get them. So I, I, 
I didn't really love the Mourinho appointment when we got him. I don't think there's really been any indication, you know, 15 months mm-hmm. in that this is going to be a long-term solution. And if you're of the viewpoint that the squad isn't good enough and we need a makeover, uh, I don't know why you couldn't have given the makeover to Pochettino instead. Hello. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty pessimistic about Mourinho these days. Yes. And you know what? Maybe, Kevin, you could help me. I, I, I want to ask you, hmm. you know, obviously you experienced this project like you already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Was there like a definitive moment in the Mourinho tenure at United where you felt like, okay, there's really no turning back at this point. Oh, it's too far gone. Was there like an epiphany that you had or is it more of a gradual thing? Mate, to be honest, I th- okay, you know what? I think I'll have to say it's a gradual thing because I, it feels like most time at United was so long ago. Like, I remember at the start when we picked him up, obviously it was so weird because I was so used to hating him on the Chelsea bench. You know, I was hating his arrogance. Yeah, all of that, right? And he comes at he comes to United. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is so exciting. Like, he's going to be a... I was going to argue a definitive success because... Mourinho had this tradition of winning at Real Madrid, at Inter, at Porto, at Chelsea, right? And he comes to us after his, let's say, failed stint at Chelsea the second time around, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Is that timing right? Let me double check. He did win a title that second time around, but I don't think he did anything in Europe. But he did win a title when he came back. Right, so he came back to Chelsea, and then he went to United after that, right? Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, I remember when we picked him up, because he left after Chelsea finished, like, mid-table that season, which was surreal, it felt that he had... Yeah, the the season after they won the title. that's right, that's right. So, I felt like when he came to United, he had so much to prove, you know, especially because this is a league that he knows, like, the back of his hand. It's going to be, like, his third tenure in the league. And it's with, like, champions. Like, this is... This is one of the biggest sides in European football. It has Manchester United has won the most Premier League titles out of any other Premier League team. And Jose's won three of them. You know what I mean? So to see or feel that excitement just sort of subside after like into the third year, that that sums it up for me. Like the football was bad for starters and like seeing the Brighton game yeah. it mirrored a lot of what I saw with United when Jose was oh, leading no. it like yeah that's that's honestly how I felt so I don't know like I get it Jose is a winner Jose is a man who definitely has etched his name in the history of football with all of his successes with his other clubs but his time at Spurs almost puts in another nail. Yeah, like almost hammers another nail into his legacy, which is sort of like archaic now. I mean, I feel like when he used to be at Real Madrid, for instance, and Pep was at Barca, those are some tasty classicos, right? But if you look at where Pep's career has gone from there, and you look at where Jose's career has gone from there, I feel like the difference is too stark to be able to put them in the same bracket now, you know? So 
I don't know. I guess this is a very long-winded way of saying it was dire at United. <laughs> and y'all got him now. So let's let's see where it goes, you know? And yeah, I honestly it's Spurs are at my club. Jose's no longer my manager, which is why I gotta say, bro, you free Sonny. Hashtag free Sonny, man. He's gotta go. I'm sorry. He's not gonna do anything yeah. at Tottenham. He's gotta move to I hate to say it, bro, but a bigger club, man. Am I wrong? Well, I think if he, yeah, there's a couple different things. Like, I would not begrudge Son if he wanted to, I mean, I'd be devastated, obviously, that goes without mm-hmm. saying. But I think he's good enough to play in any team in the world. And if Madrid or Barcelona, maybe not Barcelona, but if Madrid or even, like, Bayern, and mm-hmm. he went back to Germany, mm-hmm. if they came calling and uh, he wanted to go, I'd be devastated, but I wouldn't really hold it against him the problem is is like with covid we're starting to see the effects of kind of the ability for some of those bigger squads to come get some of these stars from england Mm -hmm. especially real madrid and barcelona i don't think they have the same kind of finances they had five years ago to be able to spend um willy-nilly like they used to i echo that sentiment um and that's the problem with I kind of feel like i'm between a rock and a hard place because i definitely want to move on for Mourinho. And I would like to go back to kind of the the mold of manager that Pochettino was, whether that's uh, you know Julian Nagelsmann or Marco Rose mm, or even Hassan Hudel at Southampton get another Southampton manager. Mm-hmm. Um, all those names sound attractive with the way they try to play football in direct contrast to Mourinho. Mm-hmm. But it is going to be, you know, I said there was talent in the squad right mm-hmm. now. But that doesn't mean that there isn't going to need to be some turnover within the squad. There is some dead wood that needs to go out. I saw an interesting athletic article last mm-hmm. week about how Spurs has an average tenure of each player. It's one of the longest tenures of any other squad in the Premier oh, League. Meaning, like, the players that have been at the squad have been longer at Spurs than most yeah. other teams. So it doesn't mean that turnover isn't necessary. I just hope that we could convince Son and Kane, mm-hmm. who are 28 and 27 respectively, yeah. that they would buy into another kind of mini rebuild with whatever manager may come in. Um, but it's tough. I mean, Mourinho's still here. He's getting paid a lot of money. He's probably second or third highest mm-hmm. paid managers in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about the blueprint of what success would look like for Spurs mm-hmm. for the rest of the season. That could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they could still end up with a trophy. Um, and you're talking about making the comparison to Pep, Kevin, mm-hmm. about how his career trajectory has gone a little bit different than Mourinho yeah. and how those old classicals are really attractive. And it's because of the contrasts and like philosophies between those two managers. That's a good point. You know, Pep feels like he wants to dominate possession, create triangles all over the pitch. You win with possession. Where Mourinho is, if you have possession, you're more likely to make a mistake. You're more likely to be fearful with the ball. Uh, you're more you're better off waiting for the opponent to make a mistake that you can pounce mm. on meaning you don't need possession mm. and in order to convince a squad to do that you really need like universal buy-in yeah. from a team that's willing to defend for long periods of time and not have the ball mm-hmm. and you bring up the archaic approach i don't think players are brought up in the same way that they were brought up back in the porto days where this hard nosed 
you're with me or you're against me approach with a lot of player management. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that flies with the current 19, 20 year olds in the world. I think right you're now. right. I think you need to be able to approach players in a different way now yeah. these days. And I don't know if he's really adapting to that. Mm. So I, I think that's mostly just to concur with what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't mean to be so overly negative no, about good. him. I just like I've tried to see the vision and I just I just don't see it. Right Got now. it. Yeah, um, just like in- and it's interesting to talk to you where you're kind of on the other end of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, do you feel like you're better off with Ole? I mean, Ole has obviously had his critics for a oh, long yeah. time. And um, I think. You know, there's a lot of players that I think under Mourinho at United I, are now looking like real legitimate players. I mean, I'm thinking of Luke Shaw. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Fred. I'm thinking of Marcus Rashford. Mm-hmm. Um, all these guys. Yeah. I mean, were put in the doghouse. Pogba, even. That was so silly. And now, now they seem to be doing a lot yeah, better. Yeah, I mean, one thing yeah. that I, I just feel like Ali at United feels right. And obviously, this has loads to do with his history at United as a player but like Luke Shaw for instance I think he his performances now compared to his performances when Mourinho was the manager I think that epitomizes the current difference in the feeling of the squad in Manchester United because Ali to be fair, I don't. I don't think that Ali is an exceptional manager. I just think that he fits the culture at United like a glove. That's yeah. interesting. Like if you think about the start of the season, we basically had a terrible summer window where we failed to really build upon the momentum of squeaking in third. You know what I mean? Like the second half of the season. Yeah, like we we replaced Dan James with Greenwood. Greenwood scored like double digit goals, which was unbelievable for a teenager. And Project Restart, he was amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. He was he was like a new signing actually at that time with how much he provided to the squad. And I don't think that would have been possible with Mourinho. I don't think Mourinho would have given Greenwood the type of chances for him to succeed like he did after Project Restart. And, um, yeah, just, like, Ollie's ability to always put on a nice face, Ollie's ability to not, like, lambast the squad, I think that's something that works really, really well with United's players. And kind of to your point about how contemporary players nowadays are wired differently, like, I don't think ruthlessness will get you a result with these players and fred fred also like what a brilliant turnaround because he came into the squad um when like he really grew into his own this was before bruno i believe this was when pogba was injured and we just really had no center midfield like steel like mitamine was still young the player he's going to become now but yeah like i I definitely love, yeah, I just really appreciate where this United squad is going. I certainly did not expect it to be as rosy as it is right now. And it's funny because when I was speaking to other United supporters, when we were first, like a couple weeks ago, it was like, yo, we're we're first. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're we're first. (laughs) Holy crap. How did that happen? It's like, I don't know. Do you know? It's like, no, I don't know. So it's... 
it's a, it's a fun ride. It's a fun ride. It was really, really hard at the start of the season. And a lot of my annoyances with our subpar performances and like middle of the table, like look was channeled towards executive board Woodward and our lack of business during the summer. But I mean, all these turned it around and I don't think that United would have been able to turn around like it did if it was, let's say Mourinho, for instance, versus Ali. So yeah, yeah, that's, does that answer your question? It does. And maybe I have a follow up. Um, I think it's really interesting that you talk about, you feel like, I don't want to put words mm. in your mouth and maybe you could um, respond to this directly, but it feels like you feel like collectively you guys feel a little bit more, I'm sorry for the pun, united <laughs> in the approach Ooh, of the team. Not <laughs> and I think, it, <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's fine. That was not deserved. <laughs> but yeah, you were saying. Um, yeah, I was just going to say like, just a feeling of like, you're collectively trying to go in the same direction and you guys are all in it together. And I agree. I don't think Ale's tactics are revolutionary. If anything, I think they might be subpar for somebody that's managing Manchester Mm -hmm. United. But with the context of taking over for Mourinho, who prides himself on the tactical approach, prides himself on that. If you have a one-off match for Mourinho, you can feel pretty confident that he can come up with a game plan to win that one Mm -hmm. match. But... He ostracized a lot of players at United. We already mentioned them. And I think if you bring in somebody like Ole, not a lot of managing experience, not the best tactical approach, but he seems to be a very good man manager. And maybe it's something about the approach to current modern modern players that makes him attractive to the players that are in the team. And, you know, I I was an Ole critic. I didn't think he would last this long. And maybe to direct it as an actual question to you, mm-hmm. Kevin, did you think Ole was going to last this long? One. Two, are you surprised at the patience with Ole, considering the lack of managerial experience? And three, do you feel like you guys as a fan base are more united now than you were under Mourinho? Because as a Spurs fan, Mourinho's really divisive. Word. Word. Wow, it's good to know, actually. I don't know. I... I think what I love about supporting United is that even during the hardest times, you've got, like, the Twitter knobheads that, of course, are always like, Ollie out, Ollie out, Ollie out. But, like, generally speaking, <laughs> there's not many United supporters that are like, yo, this XYZ, expletive, expletive, like, PE teacher, Ollie, like, terrible. You know what I mean? Like, if the results were bad, we would ask or when I would talk to other United supporters, we would ask like, yo, what's the next, what is the direction we can move in? What is the direction we are moving in right now? And I think a combination of eboard ineptitude, um, Ollie's knowing of United's culture and they're just not being other realistic alternatives to him is what bought him a lot of time. Yeah. And I don't know, Ollie's weird because during the times where he gets like the most heat like he squeezes out a couple of results every here and then that buys him more time it seems like every single time he's on the edge or on the precipice Mm -hmm. he always pulls out a result that's a really good point and then I wonder if that has less to do with footballing tactics and more to do with like the players truly backing him you know what I mean so it's it's a lot of outside looking in. I'm trying to put like pieces together 
when it comes to what direct or what particular aspects of Ollie's managerial know-hows affect United's performances and affect United's direction. But looking at it right now, at February 11th, 2021, Ollie is our manager, and I think he's going to be our manager for quite some time. And to be frank, wow. yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if the e-board remains the same, as in we don't have a director of football, as in Ed Woodward is in charge of our business, like it will do, like it's in everyone's best benefit for Ollie to stay. And I mean, I'm proud that he's still there because the way that Chelsea treated Frank, for instance, versus how all versus how United treats Ollie, like that for me personally is what makes me proud to be like a United supporter. Like, yeah, I get it. They're a big team. Yeah, yeah I, I, totally yeah, get you know it. What I mean, like we actually back our own and that's something that makes me proud. So yeah, dude. As, especially for the pedigree of Manchester United. Mm -hmm. And especially the tricky road to Ollie in the first mm -hmm. place. I mean, you bring in David Moyes after Sir Alex. What a mess. <laughs> he's done a, he's he's won the Everton Cup before at Everton. Mm -hmm. He was an established Premier League manager, didn't work out. Then you pivot, you bring in Louis Van Hall, somebody who has not been in England before, not managed in England. You bring in a shiny new foreign manager who just had a lot of success at with the Netherlands team. And you had Van Persie mm -hmm. still. That kind of made sense. I didn't work out. Then you try to bring in a proven right. winner. I'm doing parentheses <laughs> here with Jose Mourinho. Mm -hmm. And Jose will say it was a su successful stint. I don't know if United fans would agree. And then now you bring it all the way back, find somebody in-house, yeah. essentially, essentially, with, right. with Ole. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a really good point, Kevin, about the difference between Kevin or uh, Frank. Oh, right. I'm sorry, between Frank <laughs> yeah. and mm -hmm. Ole. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not that you could have managed United, Kevin. Um, no promises, but, no promises. Um, I was going to try and say, in, in Ole's favor, the fact that Ed Woodward and the lack of investment is so irregular and inconsistent, I think that's to his benefit because then he has a built-in excuse, essentially, right. if things go belly right. up. Where Frank, they, you know, Roman brings in, Roman Abramovich puts in 300 million, 200 yep. million of his own personal money to buy all these players in the yep. summer. And then all of a sudden, all this pressure is on Frank to get the most out of those mm -hmm. players, where I don't think Ole had that same kind of pressure. Yeah. Um, Agreed. And, you know, you know, Van de Beek hasn't exactly lit the world on fire. You wonder how that midfield was going to work. And the fact that he's getting players, like you were saying, Fred, mm -hmm. McTominay, and then bringing in Pogba in like more advanced roles. Mm -hmm. You found a balance in midfield that I think a lot of people going into the season didn't think was going to be possible with the investment in Van de Beek. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to get your thoughts because I think from the outside looking in, it always felt like inevitable that Ole was going to get sacked. And the fact right. that you feel so strongly about um, you know, the, sol the solidity that he has now, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm just... I think, yeah... Bottom line, it comes down to trust and consistency in the way that I feel like Ollie backs his players. Like Maguire being captain despite the summer that he has, playing literally every single game, regardless if it's like a Carabao Cup, like Division Three team, like or 
a Europa League team. Oh my god, I can't believe I said that. But Jesus Christ, yeah, we're in Europa League now. But anyway, I digress. Like, it's okay. It's okay. Welcome. <laughs> right? Welcome. I know, Jesus Christ. But yeah, like, the support that Maguire gets and the way that he plays consistently and then Fred playing consistently despite the skinning that he was getting from other footballing supporters or even United supporters. Um, I don't know. It just, it just seems right. It just seems right. And like, I just thought about this because I know we have um, a Chelsea supporter in our fighting stripes midst. So to be fair to them, Abramovich did tell Frank that he is welcome to the club at any time, that there is no animosity with his sacking and all of that. But um, listen, faith is best shown through actions and not through words. So that's going to be my yeah. parting bet when it comes to differentiating United from the lot. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And I think it's evidenced in the uh, the trophy cabinet. I think it's evidenced in that. Um, you know, I think a lot of people like to trot out that Sir Alex didn't win his first title until like, was it like five or six years in the job? Like he was there for a while Something before like he started seeing success. So yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. an FA Cup win that actually let him uh, stay at the job because he was under a lot of heat before that. So football is weird, you know. Like wow. who knows? Magic of the cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yo, so let me get your opinion then. What do you think? Um, how do you think this season's gonna shape up? Who's gonna be the champion, and who's getting relegated? I actually, I think those might be two of the easiest questions this year because uh, mm. City have a game in hand. They should be. Yeah. I don't think we're beating City this weekend. I'm sorry. I I think mm. they will have an eight point gap, and uh, the way they're playing without the Bruyne, uh, I and Aguero mad, for yeah. essentially most of the season. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to envision that them that they would slip up at this point, especially with how good their defense has been. Yeah. So I, I think the easy the easy prediction is City's going to win it. And yeah. uh, the relegation sides, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The relegation sides with, like, Brighton going on a run, like you had mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe Newcastle is the only kind of hope for Fulham, West Brom, and Sheffield United to get out of the drop I zone. Because I, I just think there's too big of a gap. I think those three are kind of nailed on to go down. Um, but when you start uh, getting the top four or even top ten, uh -huh. that gets really, really tricky. Um, yep. I would have much less confidence in predicting that. Um, Let's yeah, try top four I think four then. title. Okay, so <laughs> I, I feel confident saying City. Yep. United's tough, Kevin. I have a tough time. Oh, interesting. Especially this season, it feels like every team is like one bad result away from three straight losses mm -hmm. and one win away from going on a run. It feels very. I mean, maybe that's just the Spurs fan in me this year because everything has felt so back and forth. I feel that but, though. I think, I think I'll go. I think I'll go United. Hmm. Leicester looked pretty good. You you believe? You think they're gonna go make it happen this year? Finally. I don't know. They have more depth than they did last year, which is uh -huh. good. That's true. I mean, I think it's between Leicester, Liverpool, and Chelsea. I think one of those three teams are not going to be in it. Um. I think I'm going to go City, United. Um, I think Chelsea is going to make top four. I think Tuchel coming Agreed. in 
is gonna do them so good and then i'll go i'll go liverpool sorry lester <laughs> so i think that's probably my top four what about you no i think you pretty much nailed on my top four it's gonna be city united liverpool chelsea um i think too cool he's he's turned it around at chelsea and like this is Chelsea culture, you know, like they bring in a new manager, they tear it up for a year and a half and they flip it to the next new manager. So congrats to Chelsea. I <laughs> right. I mean, I kind no, of, I despise it to be honest, but let's not be too mean, I guess. <laughs> me too. Me oh, too. Man, I, we have that in common. <laughs> I honestly thought that I really, really, really thought that Tottenham was going to do something this year, but it's clear from what I've seen and clear from, your sentiments that there's more for Tottenham to worry about than top four. Um, at least Arsenal are a joke this season. So there's that. Um. Thank God. <laughs> That's the only redeeming quality right now. <laughs> I'm so happy at their there's, demise. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Arsenal looks so silly. I've kind of sort of stopped watching them. But at any rate, relegation. <laughs> I feel like, yo, so this is a spicy take, but I... I fancy Sheffield's chances of staying in the league. Interesting. Yeah. The great the gr- escape. Facts. They have looked much better. They've had looked they have looked much mm-hmm. better since the new year yep. started. Um I mean they couldn't have gotten much worse, <laughs> but um, No. Yeah. yeah, I think they gotta get something out of Reese Brewster. They spent a lot of money on him. They gotta get Sander Birds healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh Jack O'Connell went down with an ACL, I believe, for them. It was like one of their best defenders. Yeah, I mean Sheffield. They started uh, the season with like mad injuries, so they really didn't have that core to work with. That same core that got them mid-table last year. And I don't know. I feel like after that game where they beat us, I still can't believe that happened. That ruined my entire week. But no, it was crazy. I know it's ridiculous. That was but, crazy. Like, there's Adel Adel Trafford. Trafford too, exactly. I mean, if Sheffield can do that, then I don't see why they can't nick points off of other teams. But it will come down to Newcastle performing really substandard because I don't think Burnley are going down. Maybe Burnley too? I don't know. Burnley... Maybe. I feel like Burnley always find a way to stay up one way or another. So, I it's... That's I, true. I like Sean Dice. Yeah, 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 I like him too. Even though I hate playing against Burnley, but they're, they're I mean, they're a good side. I don't, Fair. I don't think they're gonna go down. Newcastle. I don't know what happened to Wolves. They just fell off. Like I understand that they lost Jimenez, but Jesus, it seems like they're just leaking goals now. So it's looking pretty dire. To use your privilege, <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. So I don't know. That's that's probably <laughs> what the mid table scrap is. Um, I mean bottom half of the table scrap is but yeah let's go with newcastle fulham and west brom for my relegation candidates i like that it give you a, a rooting interest i'm much more doom and gloom about none of them have a chance so i like i like the optimism in sheffield trying to yeah, get man. out of there um so yeah that's more. i like a lot of the fulham players too i i would and i scotty parker is a former right. uh spurs that's midfielder right. so I, i'd be happy if they were to were to get out as too. Josh Anamwa, normal former academy. You think product. their football's been decent, Fulham? Yeah, they just get a lot of draws. They play well and they still end up drawing. Mm-hmm. They can't get any wins right now. Gotcha. Um, but their defense look a lot better. Uh, I like Sambo Nguisa, their midfielder. Yeah. I think he looks. He's like Endo Belly Light. 
Mm, um, okay. Yeah, I, I think they got talent. It just sucks that they're probably going to go right back down again for the, like the <laughs> second time in three years. But yeah, that, that's well, how it rolls sometimes. But exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. <laughs> it's a season like no other. I think I like the excitement. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. I like the excitement of the top half of the table. I think every every match you feel like you go up four or five spots. Um, it's just I'm trying to find I'm trying to find my uh, faith or entertainment in other places besides Spurs right now. I just True. feel a little disconnected from it all. Um, Yo, so I'm actually I go back. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm I'm actually really glad that you brought that up actually because I was wondering now. Like we mentioned earlier, it's been one year into the quarantine. We just spoke 40 minutes on footy because I'm sure that a lot of our escape from our current reality is in footy, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't think I'm know, like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so dude, like how, how, how have you been like holding up for real, for real? Now that like we're a year into this madness. Um, it feels... It feels the same. I feel it, it, it's mm. gotten to the point where you forget sometimes about what it was like before or just your thought process whenever you're doing daily tasks mm-hmm. um, about masks and making sure you're tracking where you're going and stuff. All True. that thought process has been so ingrained into me the last year that to yeah. think about what it was like before is kind of hard to think about. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have the, I have the benefit. I'm very lucky. Um, I have a job that I can work home, work from home for the most part. Um, nice. So I'm very, very nice. thankful in that aspect of it. I haven't mm-hmm. had any illnesses in my family good. or people that I know. So good. Very um, good. And, and all the important aspects, I am very lucky. Um, and some of the grievances that I have are very much mm-hmm. like first world problems, Kevin. Like I don't get to go out all the time that I want to. Like boohoo, Amen. I don't yeah. really, you know, I don't really have a leg to stand on. But what nah, about you? What's it like other, um, right. in? in yeah, yeah. What's it been like for you, Kevin, out in the East Coast and stuff? What's how uh, is it? How's it been treating you? Yeah, it's been. Um, it's been. I guess you kind of summed it up. I mean, a lot of quarantine protocols definitely ingrained in my head. Um, New York in the winter time, it feels so it almost doesn't feel like the city because like in the summer um i got to go biking a lot and there weren't a lot of cars out so you know i was just like doing my thing really took for granted but also took advantage of the weather um dealing with the cold Mm -hmm. during quarantine dealing with a winter during quarantine is some grade a hokey pokey rubbish man like people yeah people are not going out obviously and i mean just like out in public in the parks right i'm not talking about like going out to go like drinking at bars or go clubbing or whatnot like they just yeah there just doesn't seem to i don't know i just i just miss energy at this point i guess like i miss the spontaneity of the city. I feel like that's what kept me going here for a long, long time. And now it's it's kind of just like camp, isn't it? Like I live with two other roommates and like we just chat and it, it almost feels like wide in our heads that, yo, what's up? This is gonna be our morning. This is also gonna be our afternoon. 
this is also going to be us vibing through the night, you know? So I don't know. I've been grateful that the footy group that I played with over the summer, I still am playing with. And they're all like New York City locals. So I can trust that they quarantine responsibly, that they don't come out if they feel endangered or whatnot. They don't come out if they feel like they're going to threaten someone else. But beyond that, man, it's it's really hard to um, stay buoyant now, it feels like. I don't know if you've, I don't know if that sentiment echoes with you, but. It does. And I actually wanted to ask you, I'm glad you Hmm. brought up playing footy because that's Mm -hmm. something that we talked about off air about Mm -hmm. how that was a really nice escape for you during these weird, weird times. Uh, Do you want to speak a little bit on that escape for yourself and just how beneficial you have felt the fact that you were able to get out and still play um, I'm not sure logistically how it's working right now in a New York winter, but yeah, um, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about the benefit of that and how it's sure. been something that has kept you buoyant. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, yo, now at this point, it almost feels like it's a it's a channel or a tether to the reality that once was. You know what I mean? Because like the footy group that I play with, yeah, like I only see them once a week but I've seen them once a week for the last like four years. So it's a very particular but comfortable relationship, you know? And then when you get on the pitch, like you don't need to worry about anything but defending or scoring goals or like yelling at your teammate to defend or track back or to do better. Like all of your concerns and all of your considerations are just on the game. And that's so comfortable now especially because it's not like oh shit like did you hear about the new strain of covid that fucking came from south africa that's dangerous now yeah yeah jesus christ right like i feel like every single piece of info i hear nowadays is like okay so how do i have to work around this you know what i mean versus if i say to myself how do i work around this on the pitch then I have all the tools at my disposal to actually do things. And I don't know, that agency is something that I've appreciated a lot more. And yeah, since I've been playing for like every single week for a year now, like my first touch has gotten okay, at least, you know what I mean? So <laughs> playing is more fun. <laughs> but yeah, I that's, think agency yeah. is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Agency Go is ahead. a word that you said that I really latch on to. Because Hmm. that is a, I mean, it goes without saying that escapes like physical activity that gets you out of your house could be Mm -hmm. beneficial to you. I think that kind of goes without saying. But I think the fact that you feel like you have the agency within footy, Mm -hmm. that your other worries or concerns are not applicable anymore, what you need to worry about are very finite and explicit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that can be really releasing. And, you know, we're talking about how we've been watching the Premier League very intimately. And I think part of my appeal of sports in general is that it is an escape from the news cycle and other things going on in my life that are Mm -hmm. bad or I don't want to think about. Mm -hmm. And this year, there has been no distinction. The sports world, the things that I like to follow as an escape are no longer an escape. It's very much entwined with everything else that's going on in our life. So the fact mm. that you were saying that you feel like you have agency when you get to go play weekly footy, 
I think is really, really important because um, feeling a sense of agency is something that I think a lot of people crave evidenced yeah. by like buying all the toilet paper at Costco because they feel like they can. <laughs> like, I think that was just that. people kind of going through what they can control. And I mm-hmm. guess in that moment, they felt like they could control buying a lot of toilet paper. Uh, I think that's kind of what it kind of kind of comes down to is people want to feel like they're in control in a situation yeah. that I don't think we really do have much control. That's right. That's exactly right. So like, do you feel is, is, do you gravitate towards the concept of agency too? Because that's something that you've actively exercised in pockets of your world to combat against the new reality, which is COVID living. Yeah, I try to. I try to. Uh, my girlfriend is uh, much more on top of figuring out what the best guidelines and stuff are. And maybe oh, nice. I've been a little bit naive to some of the most appropriate practices and stuff. Copy. And Copy. Uh, I don't want. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to be totally like getting situations where you feel like you have agency at all costs. I don't think I want to project that narrative because I think a lot of people who maybe don't feel like they need to wear masks or don't feel like they need to take any precautions, their mm-hmm. rationale could probably be the same thing as us where they want to feel a sense of agency because they control what they want to do. So is there is shot. like a negative side to it where like people yep. will justify doing bad things because they want to feel agency. So, you I know, follow. there's nuance as with everything, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think agency is important, definitely. It makes you feel like, like I said, you're in control. So um, I think that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's dope, dude. Okay. So I think that's basically it on the COVID front because Lord knows this is a bit of a grim topic. So let's let's switch it up yeah, a bit. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I think other people have talked about it too. I don't think we're the only ones. <laughs> dope. Cool. So in that case, let's brighten up a little bit. Um, happy one year since Parasite won or swept the Oscars with uh, Best Foreign Film, Best Director, crap, I forgot the third one, but most importantly, Best Picture. Um, best Picture, baby. Yeah, Best Picture, baby, exactly. I kind of wanted to follow up with that nugget of truth now in that since it's been a year since Parasite like really hit the world stage, do you feel that soft power seems so diplomatic, but do you feel like there's been a shifting sentiment towards Koreans since that whole episode last year at the Oscars? Just from your own personal, you know, perspective. Um yeah, I think it's a loaded question. Um, I I don't. I think my initial response is no, but mm-hmm. that's not to diminish the impact that Parasite has had. I think mm-hmm. putting a spotlight on that, and especially giving somebody like Bong the the best director Oscar, yeah. I think yeah, that kind of recognition is still important. Yeah, mm-hmm. like Bong's the man. It's totally cool. It was awesome that he got recognized. Um, mm-hmm. And all that's really good and important, but I think the kind of people that maybe would be hesitant to fully accept or acknowledge maybe just Koreans in general, Mm -hmm. I don't think the fact that a Korean film won some accolades would necessarily change those people's opinions. That's a fabulous Uh, point. Maybe that's a negative way to look at it, but... No, it's it's um, insightful. Yeah, what did you think? 
Um, I think, well, I guess it's a little different for me, or I guess I'm like really, really invested in considering that because, because I work as a video editor and because I work in like media, um, you know, it's just like really fucking awesome when you see a Korean man winning best director award at like one of the most premier award shows for films you know and i i don't i i definitely feel a growing paradigm shift in the way that folks view koreans especially with like k-pop becoming american pop now as well as korean media successes um i think that also goes hand in hand with all the hype that's come with the release of minari so there's definitely something that's like brewing when it comes to american sentiment towards koreans but like you said man it's it's loaded and i don't think that parasite winning best screenplay I don't know if it was best screenplay, but Parasite sweeping the Oscars, um, <laughs> right? But yeah. yeah, I don't think that Parasite sweeping the Oscars <laughs> is exactly the sort of thing that will illuminate or change the viewpoints of certain folks that feel strongly against Korean folks. Does that make sense? Or did I put too many... Did I make too many generalizations when I translated what you said on that front? Do you know what I'm trying to say? No, I think I think you verbatim essentially summarized Copy. what I was saying. And now hearing mm -hmm. it back, now that I'm hearing it back, I'm like, I I think I kind of want to maybe walk sure. back some of that. Because now that you're saying exactly what I said accurately back to me, mm -hmm. now that I'm hearing it, it's just like, well, yeah, of course there's going to always be people that aren't going to acknowledge certain accomplishments or groups. Like, of course, there's always going to be groups. So if I'm going to make the argument to diminish the cultural mm -hmm. impact that Parasite had with the rationale that some people are still not going to accept you, that's a little nearsighted on my part because it doesn't accommodate other people who are malleable to those kind of things and mm. did change their opinion mm. on based on the impact that Parasite had. So, what? yeah, maybe I think I'm underselling the impact that it had. And I think maybe you don't have to look any further than um, kind of the hype around Minari right now mm -hmm. as a way to see how maybe Parasite does create a shorter inside track to these kinds of ideas or movie makers. Um, I know I thought there was some controversy around Minari being considered a foreign language film, oh, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Because I know a lot of people were talking about some of the themes of the movie being very American right. and the idea that this is a foreign language film were a little misguided. Now, Kevin, you have seen the movie. I mm -hmm. have not. Um, I maybe would ask if you could speak on those themes, maybe without giving away the entire plot of the movie. Yes. But as for somebody that's seen the mm -hmm. movie... You were talking about a theme that it's almost less about being a Korean American and more about just That's being right. an immigrant. Maybe you could speak yeah, on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely, man. And honestly, oh crap, there was a point that you made I thought was so brilliant, and I want to talk about it, but not in my head. Stand by. Let me like buffer real quick. 
Um, Minari. Uh, it's the fact that it's a foreign language film. Oh yeah, let's. Even though it's got like a lot of American let's, people yeah, behind it. Yeah, let's just it. talk about that real quick and how twisted that is because Minari is a Korean American film, you know, produced by Americans, directed, written and directed by an American, yet it's considered a foreign film. I so know. already there, that stinks of. I'm not going to say it, but, you know, you piece it together and there's definitely some bias there that can be categorized as something more than bias. But I digress um, yeah. on that front. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it's it's more it's insult. It's even more insulting because I definitely did feel like Minari was an immigrant story in the sense that it is a family moving from a land and culture that they know to a completely foreign territory in the hopes of quote unquote making it in the hopes of actually like becoming someone you know yeah. or doing something and i feel like that's a sentiment that resonates across all races in america you know what i mean like Mexican folks, Middle Eastern folks, Black folks. I'm sure that there are so many folks that moved from the land that they know and love to potentially build greater opportunity and build a better life for their kids. You know, like what is more American than that is what I would have to ask. And it hurts even more when the theme of a film is based around that with a little Korean American flavor and it's considered foreign, you know? So I know that's, that's where it's all, that's where it's all muddled for me. And in regards to like the actual flick, like I in like, yeah, like it's, it's a family film down the line. And I'm like trying to be so wary of what I say because I don't want to spoil nothing. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like a really, it's a tender flick that I think embraces the unorthodoxness of being the other without like romanticizing being the other. You know what I mean? It's not like, the topic of racism is used as like one of the plot points or whatever. No, it's just like you see that yeah. there are micro mannerisms that Asian folks have to deal with in the bumpkin country and it is what it is. And I think that a lot of Americans of color or people of color in general just like really want to see those type of stories nowadays because those are the realities that they grew up in, you know? And this being the Different Stripes podcast that freaking talks about unorthodox upbringing of Korean Americans or like multiracial Korean Americans or multiracial Koreans, period. Like, it's, I don't know, it's just like, I feel like the existence of this podcast pretty much summarizes or validates or encapsulates the legitimacy of what Minari was trying to show 
And I don't know, that just motivates me more as like a video editor slash storyteller to like push for these type of stories or like work for these type of stories, you know? And that that's what that's that's what uh keeps me going. So sorry, I was just like on my soapbox for a minute, but uh yeah, that's just how I feel. It's a lot. Kevin, I apologize. Please do not <laughs> Please do not apologize, and please do not say that you're on a soapbox. I think that was very eloquent in the way that you said that and explained your perspective. You circled it back to the themes of this podcast. You circled it back to your own life experiences as um, it relates to immigration, your own personal interests, and video editing, considering it is a movie. Do not Mm -hmm. undersell yourself. That is a very poignant point that you were making, so I just want to elevate you here a little bit um i think those are all very well said and it is really interesting that we have these commonalities especially when specifically you and me talk about being multicultural having Mm -hmm. family members that have immigrated and the not so far past Mm -hmm. and to see movies like this where I like the fact that it is supposed to be just an immigrant story, at least from what I'm hearing. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. But it's through the lens of a Korean-American. Maybe you haven't seen that lens in a big motion picture before in America. Mm-hmm. We've seen immigrant yeah. stories. But yeah. I don't know. Maybe we've seen it from this lens before. And, you know, the fact that it is a more generally speaking immigration story, maybe that makes it more accessible to people that would not have otherwise seen it. Um, mm-hmm, and then definitely. maybe that is the exposure that they get into, oh, I never thought of the Korean-American perspective about this. Definitely. Um, and then it goes even deeper. a way that you can mention bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, like, Go. and then it goes even deeper because it's like, they're farmers too, right? So you can also involve class and be like, oh, so these are like working class Korean-American immigrants, you know, or like, these are working class Korean-American farmers, you know what I mean? Like, I feel this movie is so special because it doesn't highlight the quote-unquote differences of like the differences from like homogenous white America It more just like accepts its existence and tries to just show what life is like for folks of that ilk in contemporary America and that's 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 just something I feel like we need to see more of we um, we as americans need to see more of especially now because going into the point of how there's like rising violence against asian americans as of late the dialogue is so splintered or it's so it it doesn't seem focused you know and like i shudder to even get involved in that talk because there are some folks where they see that it's a black man that's assaulted an old Asian man and it's immediately like this man needs to go to prison yet saying a comment like that is beyond insulting for the black American community because black Americans are getting incarcerated at an egregious rate under the at like a disproportional rate you know what i mean compared to how many black americans yeah. are in this country versus white americans and i feel like minari frames what it means to be a person of color in this country 
in a healthy way that allows us to observe our differences during a time where it seems like those differences are only aggravating folks to treat each other as enemies as opposed to like fellow Americans. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, that is, I don't think a lot of people maybe would necessarily think you see an aggressive, I was thinking of the Asian American attacks. Mm. Uh, you know, you see these aggressive attacks and yeah, I've seen some of them have been, uh, you know, black people that have done mm -hmm. these attacks. And you gotta be really careful about how For you sure. talk about it because I don't think anybody is saying that these individuals should be absolved for their yeah. actions because of their skin mm -hmm. color. But I think it's more of what you were saying, Kevin. I, th I think what you were saying is that it's just acknowledging that, okay, if you go down this road of dialogue, what are kind of the precautions of how that is perceived by mm -hmm. other people? And, you know, I think uh, some of the underlying themes that you're talking about of trying to emphasize the differences be between people and while acknowledging those differences, finding the common ground that mm -hmm. we all have, specifically as Americans, because, you know, a lot of the ideals, at least from what I was maybe glorified to mm -hmm. me, but the idea that you can be from different places and still be under the umbrella of American. And, you know, it is really sad to see those attacks and to see the disproportionate amount of attacks yeah. right now on elderly Asian Americans. Yeah. Um, and maybe the lack of a spotlight on it. And yeah, I would really hate for the discussion of that to be boiled down to it's violent black people right. that are doing this. Right. And that's the reason. And that's the thing that we should focus on is that it's black people doing it. I think that's probably an unhealthy way to approach it. Um, yeah. I think there are probably okay. more constructive ways to. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm barely an authority to talk about uh, the sports teams that I like. I am not an authority to talk about these kind of things but i think just talking with you kevin about it i think mm -hmm. the more you talk about it the more easier it is to find common ground Definitely. and i don't think that's just because we have similar backgrounds i think if we didn't look like each other and if we came from different backgrounds i think at least i'd like to think that we would have the same common ground that we have now yeah i mean one thing that i'm certainly proud about is that a lot or some of the dialogue that i've been seeing regarding the, the rising violence against Asian Americans as of late, is that there are a lot of folks that are trying to shift the discourse from being like punitive. I don't know where it's moving to, but it's moving away yeah. from these black people are dangerous, you know, because I that is a line that I heard million times over from like the generation of Asian Americans before me, you know? But the, yeah, the million dollar question for me would be, okay, what is, what is the right way to talk about this? How can we talk about this in a fruitful manner? I know that in my group of folks, I don't care if you're like, not I don't care, but like my group of folks, like there's black folks, there's South Asian folks, you know, there's certain East Asian folks, there's Hispanic folks, and like, I'm comfortable talking about this with them, but I want to know- Yeah, you grew up with that. Yeah, right? Because yeah, we grew up and we acknowledge and embrace our differences and we 
joke and we learn and all that stuff. But I want to know how can that sort of philosophy exist just beyond friend groups and let that be more common discourse. You know what I mean? Or that may that just be the more common framework. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, because I don't think I have the answer either. I mean, I yeah. think that's a very, very critical point that you bring up. It's like, okay, we can acknowledge these things, but then what do you do to actually combat it? Because, I mean, I'll be frank, my my Asian relatives, mm -hmm. they can be really racist towards specifically sure. black people. I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's mm -hmm. uncommon. I mean, that's a very yeah. common thing. Um, and I think generally speaking, that kind of just goes hand in hand with the older generation in general. I think people of our age, um, do try to be more tolerant, maybe to a fault, to maybe being overly tolerant. Um, mm -hmm. And like, what I mean by that is, I mean, there's certain things where I think intention should matter. And I don't think people are intentionally being intolerant in certain mm -hmm. situations. And so for people to be, I don't want to bring up a buzzword like cancel culture, but you know, if people drag people for, things that they might have said mm -hmm. or trivial things that they might have done mm -hmm. and then trying to kind of break them down for that it almost feels misguided mm -hmm. on like you know yes. why are we picking our battles about an old tweet from 12 years ago yes when you know we we're not acknowledging that like asian americans are getting attacked right now yes um at a disproportionate rate in the pandemic mm -hmm. um but as far as like tangible action goes I don't I don't have an answer, honestly. Yes. I, I I'm just coming to grips with these themes. I feel and, you. And um I think maybe the one thing I'd fall back on in Kevin is that, you know, talking with you mm -hmm. and talking with other people, when you actually talk face to face with someone, it's really hard to be so aggressively um <laughs> intolerant yeah. than some people like on the internet might be. Yeah. When they don't have to talk to people face to face. For sure. And I think if you just talk to people, um you end up finding much more common ground than you would think. Well, you know what, mate? I'm totally, I'm very pleased with just closing on that note because I 110% resonate with that. And bottom line, it is just about like talking and trying to find commonalities among the differences. And I think you highlighting how the faceless internet can just make things so much more poisonous or more venomous, like, that in and of itself is just like a point that we could unwrap for ages and ages. But bottom line, if you do put in a genuine attempt to talk to folks, then perhaps that can be one truly honest way to shift the paradigm of thinking. So. Yeah. And if I if I could just step yeah, in and make one last point to you it. before we wrap, like I I don't want to. Like you were feared of being on a soapbox earlier. I'm also fearful of being on a no, soapbox here too because I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this intolerance online mm -hmm. too. I mean, I get way too worked up uh, on Twitter, especially with like soccer arguments and stuff. True. I get way too emotionally involved, and I, I don't like the way I react, and I don't <laughs> like the way and tone I talk to people sometimes mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. those kind of forums because immediately afterwards. You think about it all the time, and you don't feel better. I think people are always wishing that they could get a certain response to what they say to mm -hmm. validate what they're saying on the internet. Yeah. And you never get that. You never get that validation that you're looking for. And mm -hmm. I always end up hating the way I talk. 
on that kind of stuff. So wait, so that's yeah, interesting. I'm guilty so, of it too. Something that I gotta work on too. When you get when you get like into it and you feel like your blood pressure rising, yeah, and then you're like actually yeah, you're yeah. butting heads. Like, has there ever been a time where you came out of it feeling better? No, no. And uh, <laughs> the problem is, is that I have this, I have this twisted mindset where it's like. For example, let's say you're tweeting back and forth with somebody, you have mm -hmm. disagreeing viewpoints about whatever, and mm -hmm. the rational side of me is like, just step away, don't respond, it's not worth the trouble. Right. But then I have another side of my brain that's like, well, if you don't reply, you're conceding victory to this other person. If you don't reply, then you're basically saying the other person's right. Okay. And it's totally a messed up way to view those kind of things. And, you're, and to answer your question, I never end up feeling better for it, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> Yeah, so we're all trying to better ourselves here, and that's maybe the epiphany that maybe I got to come to. It's like you're not going to have the kind of fruitful conversation you think you're going to have a lot of the time. That's I love that, and I love how you framed it too because I too have been victim of well, fuck, I got to respond even though I can't be asked because I don't want this dude to win. But bottom right, line, I don't want to lose. Yeah, yeah, I don't want, exactly, but like. Bottom line, after an hour passes, you just kind of feel scummy about getting into it in the first place or something like that, right? That's what I'm getting. So, yeah. hell, definitely, man. Definitely. That sounds, that's definitely one uh, tangible point that folks, yeah, it's good that folks hear about that because I'm sure there's people who feel like you and me. And if they hear what you have to say and they walk away more often from toxic interactions online, I'm quite pleased with that, you know? It's like we made a difference some way. Be better. You know? Yeah. Just helping people yeah. be better, right? period. Go find age. We talked about agency. Go find agency in something else. Exactly. It's better go, for you. Go buy a stress ball or yeah. a fidget cube or something, bro. Go go write or drink tea Love or it. something. <laughs> yeah. Word. Yep. Well, go play footy with your bros. Yeah. Exactly, bro. Exactly how I All do right. it. All right. Well, Kevin. Ben Kevin, I really like this, man. Yo, this was incredible, man. Thank you so much for just going through these topics and i can't believe it's been an hour and 15 minutes of us just chatting up this is sick we got to do it more often and i just want to shout out to the listeners kevin is rocking oh, yes. a astounding zip up of the korean <laughs> national team you're wild, very you're jealous wild. of that and i think we're just we'll have to we'll have to talk about it in the future when we got some national team news um, for sure oh, so that'll, yeah. be, that'll be an excuse to come back that's a good point. We'll definitely have to, we'll definitely have some national team news to talk about. And now that you're mentioning shout-outs, shout-outs to everyone that made it to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to uh, episode six of the Different Stripes podcast. Uh, this is Kevin Kim and Bennett Hogendorn. Yes, did I get that right? Please tell me I got that right. Thank God. Okay, cool. You got it. Signing off. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Kevin.